Hey, e-commerce friend, today's episode is a replay of one of our most popular episodes. And even if you listen to it the first time, I encourage you to listen to it again, because it's likely your business has evolved a lot since then, and there might be something that's more relevant to you right now, or you might just hear it differently. So don't go away. Listen through. Let's get into it. Welcome to the e-commerce badassery podcast, the place for scrappy female entrepreneurs who want to learn actionable steps and strategies to grow the traffic, sales, and profit in your e-commerce business. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster, a 20-year retail veteran who spent three years as the only employee of a seven-figure online store. That shit was crazy. I know exactly how it feels to do all the things, and I'm sharing everything I learned the hard way so you don't have to. I may have started this business by accident, but supporting badass bosses like you lights me the fuck up, and I am so stoked to see you grow. Are you ready, babe? Let's roll. Welcome back to the e-commerce badassery podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster. I am super excited for today's guest, Reese Spikerman. She is an e-commerce conversion expert who has spent more than 15 years working closely with entrepreneurs and brands on their online marketing. Today, she helps e-commerce brands quadruple their monthly revenue with website conversion optimization and copywriting. In addition to helping her clients boost product sales, Reese is the creator of the Commerce Collab Online Masterclass Series. After living in Malaysia for seven years, Reese returned to her home of northern Michigan, where she lives with her husband and four-pound Morky dog. She's a proud introvert, lover of Detroit-style pizza, and is obsessed with the TV show 12 Monkeys. In today's episode, we're diving deep into what it takes to create a product page that does the selling for you, some common mistakes you'll want to avoid, and the best way to figure out what words will actually get your customers to buy. Plus, she's got a really cool freebie for you, so make sure you check the links in the show notes. Let's dive in. Hi, Reese. Welcome to the e-commerce badassery podcast. Hey, Jessica. I'm so glad to be here because we've had some pretty cool conversations before this, and I always love it when we've already talked and come on a podcast, and it's just like a nice extension of that. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy you're here. And for you guys listening, I do pre-chats with pretty much all of my guests so that we can kind of plan what these episodes are going to be because you know, I like to keep them to the point and actionable. And I just find that it helps to plan all of that ahead of time. So I'm super excited for today's chat. And, you know, I did already introduce you, but I would love before we get into the meat of everything, just to hear more about how you ended up working specifically with e-commerce and conversion. That's a great question. And it's a little bit of a winding road, which I think a lot of us entrepreneurs have. I went to school for journalism, specifically editing. And so in my background is a lot of writing. But when I graduated, I wasn't really thrilled about following that job path. This is, I'm dating myself. I can't even remember the year. I want to say like 2002. And so ultimately, I ended up going into website design. For myself. And part of the reason why is because I didn't want to be an employee. I knew pretty quickly after my first job that I didn't want to work for other people. So I thought, <laughs> what can I do 
And I got into website design and development. And for many years, I did that. I did both the front end and the back end. And this is during the heydays of blogging. It was kind of like the wild west of blogging. And I grew from working with a lot of solopreneurs to smaller companies and corporations and international concerns. And I got burned out on web development and I got burned out on website design. But I knew that my method of looking at it and doing website design was different than I was seeing a lot of my peers do who were very focused on making it aesthetically pretty. And I love beautiful things too, but I found that they were getting in the way of the person, our visitor to the site, being able to accomplish what we want them to do, whether that's buy from us or reach out with a contact form. And so my work evolved more and more into the realm of conversion optimization. And the types of businesses that tend to need and appreciate that the most are product-based businesses, e-commerce businesses. It's not that service-based businesses don't, and I worked with them for many years, but when we're talking about people making like a snap buying decision to buy our bra or whatever it is, you need to really tweak every aspect of that journey of your website from the beginning to the end. And that's just how it evolved. And it turned out more and more that the way I think and what I love doing is a very natural fit for e-commerce and the people in it. Oh my gosh. I love all of that. I love that you have a winding story because you're right. I think most of us entrepreneurs do. And if you guys are new to the podcast, just to let you know, I mean, I started e-commerce badassery totally by accident. Like this was not a plan. I just kind of started helping some people on the side and it turned into this. So thank you for sharing that. And I also love that you talk about making your website pretty over focusing on your customer Look, I love pretty things, right? I have what I think is a pretty website. Sometimes I just go and look at it because it is so pretty, but it's also very specifically designed for the journey that I want the user to take while they're there. And what I see a lot with e-commerce businesses is they get so caught up in the pretty that they're trying to tweak every last little thing look, yes, pretty can help, but there are a lot of ugly websites out there that convert really, really well because it's actually, like you said, about what do you need on that website to get people to make a buying decision? And you do, you have moments when it comes to product-based businesses and e-commerce. So I definitely want to talk about this and that's why Reese is here. One thing I want to just say is, We could do multiple podcast episodes on this, but for today, we really wanted to focus on the actual product page because that is your salesperson. We know you spend all this time, energy, and effort showing up on social media all the time, going live in your groups or on your Facebook pages or on Instagram. You're doing ads, you're doing SEO, you're doing all of this stuff. But if your product page can't sell for you, then all of that is a waste. And Reese, I know you have five things that you really like to focus on when it comes to those product pages. So can you just first list them out for the audience and then we'll dive deeper into them? Absolutely. And I want to say there are a lot of things that you could theoretically tweak on the product page to increase persuasion, uh, help with conversion, but these are five must-haves and they are a good product title, 
optimized product images, a prominent buy button, product specs, so the hardcore features, okay? And then a product description, which is different than those specs. So those are the five. All right. So let's just start with the first one. Let's talk about that title. Yeah. I would love to hear your way in after what I say, like I like to do with it. I'm really curious what you like to do, Jessica, but I like this formula that I'll teach people. And it's basically, you have a semi-unique name for your product, and then it's followed in this product name by SEO related keywords. So for example, maybe you have a backpack for kids and it's called the Flufferino because you've given it a semi-branded name. And then after that, in the same product name, it says like pink Corgi kids backpack. So you don't want to be so clever here that no one understands like really out of the gate what your product is for. And you want Google to understand this too. I would love to know what you think and what you advise on this one. Yeah, I am in the same camp, clear over clever for sure. If you have cute brand and names, awesome, use them. But ultimately, I want people to use words that their customer is going to use to find a product like theirs because of SEO. You know, this is not my example. This is an example I heard someone else give, and I can't remember who it was, but they were working with a client who sold college survival kits. So when a kid first goes off to college, you give them this kit and she was calling them survival kits and she was attracting like doomsday preppers (laughs) (laughs) because it wasn't specific enough And Google didn't understand what their site was about. That's a very extreme example, but I think it's something we can kind of all wrap our heads around and relate to. So I really love that you are kind of combining those two things where you still have that brand element, which branding is so important and it's how you stand out online, right? In this just like sea of websites, but we do have to be practical with it too. So I'm right there with you, girl. Cool. And I love that example that you brought up. Like it's so illustrative and we're going to dig into this, but it reminds me that we're so close to our products in our minds. We've normalized everything so much that we think quickly. I sell survival kits. We forget that I sell survival kits. I make survival kits for college kids because we have like made everything in our brains really shorthand when we're that close to our products. So we're going to dig in more in a bit about what you can do to combat this, aren't we? Ah, yes, of course. I love this. All right. So the title now is a combination of your branded name for it and real words that your customers use. What's next on the list? All right. So next up, we've got product images. And you want to have these, first of all, optimized. I'm going to talk about that in a sec. But the images themselves... I find that people do not do enough and I want to see multiple angles. I want to see it close up depending on the product we're talking about. It's always contextual, right? But let's say we're talking about jewelry. I want to see it used on a human being, like put on them. And I also want to see it isolated. I want to see it close up so I can understand the materials. And I might even want to see a video in there, not a long one. You don't want to be weighing down your page, but if you can show me a video of how your ring like sparkles in the light, it helps immerse me into how that ring will fit into my life. 
So I need enough photos to make a buying decision. And while I'm on this topic, I talked about optimization. You've got to make sure that this product page is loading fast and you have things in play. Like if you're on Shopify, they have this automatically. It's called lazy loading. There's some different things you can do to make sure that those product images are not really weighing down your page, especially on people's phones. They are just not going to wait around for them to load. Yeah. And I don't remember what the statistics are, but for like every second of loading, you lose a very big chunk of conversion. And yes, Shopify does already do a great job of this. Is there any tool that you like people to use before they upload their images? Because I have one that I like, but I'd love to hear what you use, if anything. On my Mac, I have, and I think it's free, it's called Image Optin. It's with an M, so O-P-T-I-M. Now, keep in mind, I have a design background, so I can kind of work this system a little bit differently, but I will get them cropped how I want, and then I'll run it through Image Optin, which basically compresses the file size. And I have found, I like this one because I don't think it pixelizes the image too much. So that's what I like. You can get some apps that you put on top of your Shopify store, but I would prefer you to actually do it on your computer first, because why would you have an added app running on your store that you could have your computer taken care of instead? It's just going to slow down your site the more you add these kinds of apps. So I prefer to take care of it first locally on my computer and then upload it to the website. Yes. I use the same tool. Love that tool. If you're listening and you're not on a Mac or you want an online option, I really love Kraken.io and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's spelled with a K. You know, you do have to crop your images first to the size that you want them to be. And you don't need a 3000 pixel product image on your website. So definitely crop them smaller than that. And then you just upload them into Kraken and it does it all really quick. You can download them again and then add them to Shopify. And I love that you're saying that because you're right. Save your app load for adding functionality to your website. That's going to help you sell your product to your customer. All these other things you can kind of do ahead of time. And when I first, first started e-commerce badassery, there was someone on Instagram who hand makes skincare. And I think she was doing like a lot of local markets and things like that. And she had her website and she had literally made $0 on her website at the time that I was having this conversation with her. So I go and take a peek. Her website was beautiful but she had these huge images and it was loading so painfully slow. And it's very hard when I'm not in her business, right? I'm not looking at her analytics. This was just like my initial gut reaction. I said, use this tool, optimize your images and let me know what happens. So she did. And I think it was like three or four days later. She's like, I got my first online sale. (laughs) It was literally that simple. It wasn't, oh, you have to tweak all of your copy and the layout and the colors. It was none of that. It was just make your website faster. (laughs) All right. What is next on the list? It's a prominent buy button. So you do not want to hide or bury that mofo. It needs to be near the top of the page. I see these people with these like dainty little elegant buy buttons. I'm like, it's getting dwarfed by everything else on your page. It needs to be, in my opinion, the most dominant thing on the page visually. Now you're going to have product photos that will look larger, especially if we're talking about desktop, but I need 
in terms of the color you're using for that thing and where our eyes go. I want that buy button to not be anything I need more than a split second for me to find visually. And that means don't hide it way down below. Don't move it near the top of the page. So we call this above the fold. It comes from newspapers long ago. You know how you'd have a newspaper and there's a crease in the middle and then you fold Mm. it. Well, websites are similar. And what it means is basically before people start to scroll. So especially on desktop and if you can on mobile, it's a little trickier but I don't want you to go maybe more than two scrolls with your thumb before you're seeing that buy button. Yeah, absolutely. Have you found a color or what is kind of your thoughts around the color of the buy buttons? Because in my previous day job, we had some consultant that came in and was like, oh, try this, try this. And we did a bunch of A-B testing actually. And our original color performed way, way better. So Is there any color that you see universally works great or how should they kind of decide this? First, I'm glad you brought up testing because whatever I'm going to say today or anyone else tells you, we have data that has been kind of proven to work in the real world across the board. But at some point, you're going to need to start testing some of these decisions. With that said, my favorite hack is honestly to borrow Amazon. And what I mean is We know a ton of our buyers are buying from Amazon and Amazon has trained them to see the orange-ish button as the buy button. I literally will use their color because this is subconsciously in people's brains. They have begun to associate buy or add to cart with that color because Amazon's used so much. You know, it changes if we're talking about different countries, but when we're talking about mostly in the Western world, that's the case. So let's hack what people's brains have already been trained to do and use that color for our buy button. Now, I got to know, since you did the testing, which color was the winner and what did the consultant want to do? Yeah, for sure. So our colors were black, red, and white. And the red was like a true lipsticky red, really pretty red. And our buy buttons or our add to cart buttons were red. And they kind of wanted to test it. So we started testing it with a black button and it tanked, like it tanked. It was so bad. So we just went back to the red and, you know, I don't work for them anymore. I still consult with them on some things, you know, projects we were finishing up before I left. So I don't know if they've done any additional testing since then. We never got around to testing Amazon yellow And I know, you know, a lot of times the reason why we probably wouldn't have done it is because of the brand. That brand has been around since the early 90s. These are our colors. And so it's hard to say, yeah, let me just use this yellow button that has nothing to do with my brand. So what are your thoughts on that? I think that's such a great question. And it's, I think there's not a definitive answer here. Like, where is the line between? branding and optimization. And in the case you brought up, first of all, I am not remotely surprised that the black button completely tanked. Whenever I see a black buy button, I get very sad. But (laughs) I also find it interesting because a lot of times I will advise people not to use red because in our minds, we associate red with stop because of stop signs, stop lights. But you found this is such a good example of why you need to test. The Mm -hmm. red worked great for you guys. You're right. If you had introduced yellow into your branding scheme, it probably would look too jarring. And I don't mean like jarring in the bad way, like in the, this doesn't fit. And so I think there's kind of these fine lines and 
that's why there's no hard and fast rule here. And there's people who I've worked with where I won't have them do that Amazon yellow. It just doesn't make sense in the context of their brand colors. But I think if you have a fairly neutral looking website, you don't have a very strong brand color aesthetic on your website, it's not a bad color to start out with. Yeah. If you're starting from zero, it's a great place to try, you know, and we talk about testing and you've talked about really optimizing at each piece of the journey. And what I really try and instill into my listeners is we have to do what the data tells us to do. And with these add to cart buttons, like there is a benchmark in a way that you can look in Google analytics to see what percentage of people who land on my product page hit the add to cart button. And that will kind of tell you how that page is performing. So if I remember correctly, some of the previous research I've done, the benchmark is around 12 to 14% or something like that. Do you know if that's right? Is that the number we should be aiming for? That's just for add to cart, not checkout. Yes. Just for like, if I land on a product page, you're looking for 12 to 14% of people to hit the add to cart button. Yeah. When you think about the whole average conversion rate being around one to 2%, it kind of makes sense. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Like along the journey, those percentages start stacking downward. It's mm-hmm. kind of, if we talk about your wheelhouse emails, we have an open rate, then we have a click rate, and then we yep. have a purchase rate from mm-hmm. email and they consecutively like will go down. Okay. So that's a good number to start with. That doesn't mean if you're already at that number that you can't try and tweak a couple things and see if you can increase it, of course, but figure out what your add to cart rate is when you start making these little changes. So you have your own benchmark as well to kind of go up against one last question about the button thing. So in most Shopify themes, they will have an add to cart button, and then they will have that quick buy button. Do you have an opinion on those? They kind of drive me nuts. (laughs) Here's why. I'm of the bent that in general, I like to give people one choice at a time. And research and behavioral economics tells us that when presented with too many choices, Mm -hmm. people will know, oh, there's a story about that they did a study where If you go into the jam aisle of a grocery store and there's like 400 jams, you just will not get a jam because you're like, I am overwhelmed by these choices. I'm afraid I'm going to make the wrong choice. So I will choose no jam. And the reason I bring that up is a lot of people who spend all this time and effort on their stores and their sites think that I need to make sure I give people a lot of options. And that actually can be very overwhelming for our customer. So back to your question. I don't have data to back this up. This is just kind of my hunch. I prefer just to have the add to cart, but I can understand the argument for having the buy now because it kind of bypasses a step or two in the checkout process. This is one of these where, again, if you are bringing in enough volume, and a lot of this audience, I think, might not be at this point, but if you are bringing in enough volume in your store, You want to split test it, make maybe two weeks where you have both and two weeks where you just have one. What does the data tell you? Right. And I think it depends a little bit on your product and your business. If you are a one product store and they're just coming for that product, buy now button is probably great because they don't need to shop around. But if you have a wider assortment and you want them to buy multiple items when they're there, 
that buy now button could actually take away that experience and you can end up with a lower AOV. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to test. <laughs> that is probably the answer to most things. You need to test. Well, also, the other answer, I think, is something you just pointed to. Context matters. I feel like making myself a t-shirt or tattooing this on me or something, like context is everything. What works for store A is not something you can just necessarily just swipe and go with on your store if you have a completely different type of product. You need to consider the context of not only what you're selling, but who your customers are, their sophistication, their age. I mean, there's so much here. And I'm really glad you brought that up. It really depends on your product. Yeah. I love that so much. And that could literally be its own podcast episode as well. Okay. So I think next up, correct me if I'm wrong, is the actual like hard features and specs of your product. Right. So if we think about, oh, let's say a purse and the stuff like it's 100% Italian made leather, the dimensions, 18 by 24 by whatever, X stitched inside, then the color, the colors available to me. It might even include things in here. For example, if you have a certain guarantee around this purse, you know, lifetime guarantee, or when we're thinking about clothing, like other kinds of clothing, it might include things like the materials on it, the length, how it might fit on one variety type versus another. So the specs are very product dependent, like we were just talking about, but these are the things, you know, that brass tacks sort of information. The stuff I need to know to know, like if it'll work in my life from a very functional perspective. Got it. That's a pretty easy one. I think for everyone to wrap their head around, this is where you also want ingredients, dimensions and stuff on clothing for size charts. So, so, so important because even if you have a great return policy, like returning online stuff is still a total pain. Do you know how many things I've gone on Amazon and been like, okay, I'm going to return this. That's still sitting here that I never returned. And now I'm like, now I passed the window and I've like wasted my money on it because the information wasn't right. So yeah, definitely avoid that if you can, because it just leaves a bad taste in the customer's mouth. You know, a lot of newer themes and some designs that you will see kind of puts this more in like an accordion drop down. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, do you want this front and center or is it okay to kind of hide it a little bit for the customer to seek out? I think, again, this is really product dependent. So let's compare two different types of products. Product A is a multi-tool and it's maybe three, $400 tool. And product B is, I don't know, I, I've got a hair clip next to me. It's a plastic <laughs> $2 hair clip. In the case of product B, I see no need to have an accordion there because the product is so simple. It's not a lot of complication. It's not a lot of information I'm trying to convey. Let's not shove it into an accordion. In the case of the multi-tool, there's different ways to skin this cat. One of them that I kind of like sometimes are tabs. Mm. It depends. There's been studies that have shown that, especially on mobile, that I believe it's accordions tend to help usability more. I don't mind when you have a more complicated product of having to put some of it behind an accordion but it's really important that there's critical pieces of information that you don't make your customer have to search too much for. So for example, shipping and returns information is really important to people. I wouldn't want to necessarily bury that behind a tab or an accordion. 
but I might be okay with having additional videos or product photos, that kind of deeper information behind them. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, like you said, context matters. So for instance, the shipping and returns, maybe instead of burying that written information in an accordion, you can have icons on the page that kind of say 30 day returns or fast shipping, or whatever it is. And maybe you have that additional information where you can kind of write that out more in an accordion, for example, is a way that you can kind of get around that. So just for you guys to kind of start thinking a little bit, think from the customer perspective, not the CEO perspective. I tell you guys this all the time about a lot of things and really think about what does the customer need to know and understand to make a buying decision at this point. Last up is the description. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about this because this is a struggle for a lot of people, I know for sure. It is. It's one of the top things I will get asked about. The product description, this is not where you're going to go write something like, this dress is 20 inches long and made from X. So let me give you an example from the world of real estate, and I'll tie it back to e-commerce. You could describe a house like this. If you're a realtor, you could say, hey, it's got green paint and air conditioning and wood floors. Okay, great. But compare that to another realtor who describes the same house, and it sounds like this. You'll love this delightful three-story Tudor with old world charm and breathtaking views of Beaver Lake. This four-bedroom, three-bathroom home has a two-car garage, giving you 1,800 square feet of spacious elegance, natural oak floors throughout, and a modern gourmet kitchen. Imagine cuddling up to a cozy fireplace with a good book. So if we took that idea and we used it to think about our product descriptions, the idea is this. We want to have copy in our product description that isn't just the facts, not just those features. We need to relate it to our customers' lives and help them imagine our product in their life and how their life will be different when they use that product. And we're going to talk in a little bit about using your customers' words and talking with your customers in order to get the product descriptions. But you want to be able in the product description to address both the analytical buyer and the emotional buyer. And in the example I gave with the house, the realtor, do you notice she still snuck in there things like four bedrooms, three baths. So those are more the facts while painting this picture in the product description. And it also has some keywords in it that will help when Google is searching. And I can see as I'm just explaining this to you, why product descriptions are very challenging for people to wrap their heads around because we're not only trying to weave in the facts, we're trying to tell a story and we're trying to make it Google friendly too. That's a really tall order for a very small bit of copy on our product page to do. Yeah. I love that example. And when you're listening to those descriptions, I mean, which house do you want, <laughs> right? Like which one actually makes you say, oh, I need to look at this more, right? Let me contact this realtor so I can go take a tour because you do, you start to imagine yourself and what your life would be like. And a couple episodes ago, I talked about the rocks method of creating content and the O in that stands for the outcome the customer is looking for. And that's what they are looking for, right? They want a home or a product that is going to make their life better. 
different, whatever it is that they need right now. So that's such a great example. Thank you for sharing it. And how do we get there? Is it where we just kind of start listing it out and then give it to someone else to make it a little bit more like flowery? I mean, how do we even start here trying to create these descriptions? Like I said, it's a tall order, isn't it? Mm -hmm. One thing you brought up that I think is really important is if we go back to the real estate example, I have seen many two flowery description of a house. And I'm just like rolling my eyes. Like, are you kidding me here? I don't know. Maybe my 80 year old aunt would love it from a different generation, but it's not really resonating with me. However, you can't just make assumptions. You can't just say, this is what I think my product description is. I'm going to write it up and we're going to roll with it. The best way that I find to write these is to collect a ton of words, sentences, feedback, customer reviews related to your product. And I come from a copywriting background. I start piecing them together. So I'll give you an example from a client I worked with who has a wild Alaskan seafood business like fish, mainly Mm. salmon. Okay. So food industry here, and she ships them frozen. She was really struggling with her product descriptions. And we started going through her reviews together and I got with her and I said, just talk to me. What do people say? What do people tell you when they get their boxes in the mail? What makes them happy? What do they love? And we pieced together this idea and started writing. And here's what we came up with. And these are almost all her customers' words. So Copper River Sockeye Salmon is so good. People often remember the first time they've had it. It's probably why you're here because it's usually only found in fancy restaurants and tastes so clean. It's almost like you caught it yourself. Unlike the bland, soft, farm-raised salmon in the big box stores, these fillets are full of flavor that you can see in the bright red color. Their higher fat and oil content gives them a rich, bold taste and helps your heart with healthy omega freaks. Now, not every word came from the customer. Very few customers are going to say, I want to help my heart with healthy omega freeze. But some of the customers (laughs) did say, I like knowing that also with this fish that I am getting omega threes automatically. But a lot of the words like taste so clean, it's like you almost caught it yourself. A lot of her market is men who like to fancy themselves as fishermen. They want to go catch this fish themselves, but they can't. So the next best thing is to get fish delivered to their door that makes them feel like they caught it. And we know that from their customers' words. And what I just read to you is an example of taking together the reviews, what her customers tell her, what she knows about her product, and painting that picture of how it fits in their life. So you really do need to talk with your customers. You need to read reviews, not only of your own products, but competitors' products, and piece those together and make sure you're also describing your product in a way that is conversational. Do you notice like the sentence? It's probably why you're here because it's usually only found in fancy restaurants. That's something that people will say. We don't want to sound like robots in our product description. You want to read it aloud and ask yourself, could I see myself saying this to a friend and not being like, who do I sound like? So when you're writing them, read it back aloud. Use the words your customer used, piece them together into your product description, and then put in the important things they need to know, like the bright red color, the higher fat and oil content. Do you see how that all came together, Jessica? 
Okay. So there's a million things I can say about this right now, just to praise how amazing all that was. Here's what I want to say to the listeners. I want you to rewind. I don't know if that was like 30 seconds or a minute or what, and I want you to re-listen to it and listen to it many, many times because this is an amazing example. And I love that you said, so we don't sound like a robot. Is this something I would say in real life? Is this something I would say to a friend? And this happens with product descriptions, with emails, with social media content, right? Is like, we just kind of make this so much more complicated. We think it has to be written perfectly. We get randomly corporate. <laughs> no, what we need to do is we need to use the words that our customers use related to our product. And I use this example on my website, and obviously I'm a service provider, but a lot of the words on my website come from the things that my clients have said to me. If you go to my website right now and you go to the e-commerce help page, on the top, it literally says e-commerce is hard because that is what e-commerce entrepreneurs tell me is that it's hard. It's the most basic language <laughs> ever, but that is what they resonate with. So I love all of that. And here's the thing. You're not going to have all those reviews and that feedback right away. So like everything else, it is a living, breathing thing that you are tweaking along the way and making updates as you learn more about your customer and what really resonates with them. And the other thing you mentioned that I just want to highlight here is reading your competitors' reviews. That stuff is gold, my friends, total gold, especially if you read the bad ones, because it will tell you all the things they don't like about those products. So you know what to highlight to set yourself apart from your competition. Take your last tip and roll with it a little bit for people so that yeah. they can really think about how this might apply tangibly. Because I found a lot of people, myself included, struggle to get away from that kind of advice in a very literal and prescriptive way. So it might translate in them into going to a competitor site and seeing, I hated how this like pinched in on my waist and literally putting something in their product description, like don't hate anymore, something pinching on your waist, right? It's yeah. not quite like that. We're going to take it and we've got to pivot it. And so in this example, I'm just thinking of a pair of leggings. You sell leggings too. So the way you might turn that around in your description and with our XYZ blah, blah, blah band, whatever it is that you've got that makes your thing different, you can be confident you'll never feel that awkward pinch on your waist again. So you can bring up the complaint that you're seeing on the competitor, but you're turning it into the positive and helping deal with a potential objection that they have about leggings. And then they're going to go, I have needed that. I have needed leggings that don't make me feel really self-conscious about my poochie tummy. Okay. I love that. Thank you for reframing that. And that actually brings me to another question is for years and years and years in terms of copywriting, we would talk about really like agitating the pain and reminding them of the pain and that people buy to avoid pain more than to have pleasure. Do you find that to be true? Does it depend? Has it changed in 
2021 and just everything that the world has gone through? Like, are we just sick of hearing the negative and want to focus more on the positive? Holy crap. We need at least five more episodes between us. (laughs) Let me tell you a story from Pizza Hut that I think is going to bring this home because you talked about the state of the world. We've been going to Pizza Hut and a big part of why isn't the pizza. I noticed when we went there in the last few months, they were playing their music. This station that is the most perfect in the world. I wish I could find it. I can't. It's a mix of 80s and early 90s. And so I'm sitting there and I said, the only thing that this Pizza Hut is missing is alcohol. Because I could just sit here and be like in a bar. (laughs) I felt like I was in a very different time for a little moment there. That music took me back. The reason I bring that up is I've noticed when we're out shopping, there's a lot of nostalgia going on right now with the music that places are playing. And I think it's because those shops, those retailers are trying to put people in a mood where they're remembering a different time, a simpler time, maybe when they were kids, whatever it is, people are longing for that. And so because of that, to your question, one in general, I philosophically don't like leading with the pain, like hitting people over the head with it. And I think there's ways to address their problems that aren't fear-based, that aren't trying to just like drag them down. We can still talk about their problems, but I like leading instead with what's possible for people, what's possible for that customer. Like the example I gave in the leggings, we can speak to a potential problem or pain that other similar products cause. But I just am personally, like as a human being, not a fan of having that be my leading headline. Like most leggings suck. With that said, I thought that your headline about e-commerce is hard is compelling. And so the conclusion here is, again, it depends. Yeah. I don't know if I have a hard and fast one on this. We can't avoid talking about our customers' problems. And I think some people want to, and they think they think that they're being too negative. But I think if you do it the right way in copywriting, it can be an extraordinarily empathetic thing to do. It's all about, I think, the delivery. How are you doing this? Are you making them feel bad about themselves? Or are you highlighting a problem they've been having and saying, I have a solution that I think might make that feel a little better? Yeah, I love that distinction. And it's different. And I think that's why for me, like that e-commerce is hard work because it's like, that's exactly how I feel. (laughs) Yes, it is. And here I can help you, right? So I love that. Okay, so before we move on to the questions that I kind of ask every single one of my guests, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we touch on? You already touched on something that I wanted to wrap up with. So you did it and it was basically about your product page and your website in general being this evolving thing. You're going to have to come out of the gate making some assumptions about your customers when you're new to this gig. I have with my business. And I was so surprised by what I would learn from the clients and people I worked with. And I'd be like, wow, that is not remotely at all what I thought was the issue. And you evolve it. So it's okay. You don't have to be perfect at this. Give it your best stab out of the gate and then keep evolving it. Like be more light and gentle and kind of curious about it all rather than so rigid and feeling like you've got to get it perfect. I think that's a big thing I'd love to leave people with is you can do this. It doesn't have to be perfect out of the gate. And I have faith in you taking the tools that Jessica gives you that we talked about today and doing an amazing job with it. If you just keep at it. 
Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for leaving it on a positive note as well. Oh, one more thing, actually. So this was not going to be part of our original conversation because it wasn't a thing yet, but I did just mention to Reese that I wanted to touch on this on today's episode. And that is Shopify's online store 2.0. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode about this where the theme customizer in Shopify is going to have way more functionality and give you so much more freedom to design pages on your website. So you can probably get rid of those page builders that you're using and things like that, which is awesome. But I want to talk about the flexibility that you're going to have to design your product pages and how you might not want to use all of them because people have an expectation of what product pages are going to look like and how they are laid out. So Reese, I would love to just hear your thoughts on this and if there's anything we should avoid doing. Yeah. So with all this freedom can come the temptation to go hog wild on your product page, please don't. And frankly, there are themes and templates out there that don't get the product page right, in my opinion. Basically, people have been trained to expect certain things with the product page. I'm going to return to my example of Amazon, right? I said we've been trained to associate the color yellow or that yellowy orange with buy. If you go to Amazon and you go to any of some of the leading e-commerce websites, There's a certain amount of stuff that's at the top of the page. And some of the big ones are the price and the buy button. You don't want to be moving that down like four columns down the page just because you can do that now on Shopify. So don't. If the Shopify default theme out of the gate has things structured a certain way with the product page, I would really roll with that for the most part. And if you are feeling like you want to optimize, the place to optimize is start playing around with your copy not the layout. Got it. Simple, easy, just anything that's above the fold, just leave it that way. Yes. (laughs) Don't rearrange that stuff. You know, what's cool is if you have certain brands that you want to feature or Reese used the example of a handbag earlier, right? If you want to show nice big pictures with the dimensions and all that, like you can add all that below the folds, the customer can scroll down to see it. But all of that top, your title, your price, your review stars, your description, your add to cart button, just leave them where they're at. Don't rearrange them. It's confusing. Okay. Awesome. I just wanted to touch on that. So Everyone listening and Reese, if you didn't already know, I am a big believer in keeping it real with my audience because e-commerce is not all sunshine and rainbows. And there's a lot of BS on the internet about how things are really easy. Oh oh my God. (laughs) I love to share failures when I have guests on the show. So working with a client, do you have maybe a biggest failure or a strategy that you tested that just like totally flopped and didn't work the way you thought it would? Last year, I did some copywriting for a client who was running her stuff through ClickFunnels or something. And it's not so much like a strategy that I had that failed, but I think it illustrates something about expectations that I think is important for your audience. She had gone from no sales at all for this particular product. It was a digital product. Her whole marketing plan was to have the Facebook ad funnel, like runs to this page with the copy that I wrote and then check out. I think she was getting like an 8% conversion rate after the stuff that we did. And she felt that basically 
she should be getting hundreds of orders going from like zero to that. I felt awful. And there was a lot of stuff going on in my business at the time too. And so I was kind of emotionally unresilient and I didn't have the context to think about, wait a minute, this is a success. This isn't a failure. And the whole thing fell apart. It was not a good scenario, but I think there's a couple of lessons here. One is that you need to really kind of keep your expectations in check. And this alludes to what Jessica said about we are sold this thing about things being easy. And in the case of this particular client scenario, I think for whatever reason, she was coming in with the expectation that she would go from zero to hundreds of orders in a matter of a couple of weeks, because that's what people are selling us online. Yeah. It's all bullshit, guys. (laughs) And people are not being honest about this. And the other thing is you have to start building up your emotional resilience so that the ups and downs of your business, these waves, like you learn to ride them a bit better rather than hinging your emotional state and how you feel about yourself to these external markers in your business. They are not a reflection of your worth as a human being. And they, a lot of times, aren't even a reflection of your business's trajectory. There are going to be waves in business. It's just the nature of what we do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is such a good lesson. I think a lot of people talk about how, you know, it's not a reflection of you and your worth and all of that. But I love that you said it is also not necessarily means anything about the trajectory of your business. And I think too, when a lot of us are maybe starting out or, you know, if you're hitting multiple six going into seven figure, you're kind of hitting this plateau and you're like, shit, maybe this is it. Or you do have a really shitty month or something that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And it only means what you make it mean. I heard a coach say that once, and she was talking about actually in the terms of a relationship. If something funky is happening in your romantic relationship or a friendship or something, it doesn't mean you're doomed. It only means what you make it mean in that moment. So I think that's really, really important. Thank you so much for sharing. How about a biggest success or something that you tested and that just like blew up beyond your wildest dreams? A few years ago, when I was taking everything that I knew and understand about conversion and started working with e-commerce businesses, I worked with a company and built my first landing page. So in this case, it's a little different than a product page. And I want to contextualize this for people because again, I don't want them to hear this story and go off to the races. Facebook ads were cheaper at that time. There was less noise. Okay. That's a really important thing here. But we built a landing page that was all geared towards a single product, no header, no footer, like no other distractions. And it told a story. It was like a very storytelling based page with all these persuasive elements. (laughs) It like five times for revenues. And it went from the Facebook ad to the page and she sold out of her products. And I was not expecting this. And it was kind of like, well, shit, I think I might be onto something moment. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. The storytelling, the persuasiveness, right? That's important elements in copy. That doesn't mean you need to write like that all the time, but definitely something to remember. Last thing, if you could give my audience one thing to take away from this episode, something they should 100% do implement in their business, what would that be? Talk to your customers. You can't get away from doing that. Like you can, but you're doing your business a disservice 
And so be really curious, ask questions, leave your biases and assumptions at the door as much as possible. We're human, so it's hard to just get very, very curious about your customers and ask them not just about like, why do you like my product? You want to talk with them about what's going on in their lives. And it's not the magazines they write, but what are their days to days like? What made them seek out your product? What was bugging them about other similar products? I mean, there's a whole slew of questions you could ask, but the bottom line is you need to start talking with them. And there's a roadmap I've made for your audience is so simple. It just kind of takes everything that we've talked about today and we've talked about a lot and condenses it into the most important. It's to talk to your customer, read the reviews and how you rewrite those into a product description. And they can get that at my website if that's okay with you for me to share. Yeah, absolutely. Please do go ahead and tell them the URL and I'll absolutely stick it in the show notes as well. Okay, great. So this roadmap is at designbyreese.com forward slash roadmap. And then after you get that, if you want to reach out and email me back and say, hey, or you wanted to get a little bit more info on something I might have talked about today, maybe it confused you or you're looking for a bit of clarity, email me back. I am really friendly. I reply to all my emails and I'd love to hear from you. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Reese. Before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find you, how they can work with you? What do you actually do, right? (laughs) And how you can support them in their businesses. They can find me, first of all, at my website. I mentioned the designbyreese.com, but if you go to designbyreese.com forward slash roadmap, you're going to get something free, which is always awesome. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm not super active there, but if you come talk to me, I will talk to you in the DM. So that's at Reese Spikerman. And I help my clients in a variety of ways at multiple levels, but usually I work with people who have been in business at least a couple of years. You don't have to be making seven figures, although I do certainly work with those sorts of clients too. I do private coaching. I have a group program. I also have things like website audits where I come in and I walk through your website from A to Z and I give you videos and a checklist on everything I'm seeing that are optimization opportunities. And I work with you mainly on your copy as well as your front end design and the things that might be creating friction in that design that prevent people from wanting to buy from you. So those are my two big areas of focus, the conversion and the copy. Got it. I love it. Thank you so, so much again for being here. It's just been a pleasure chatting with you. I'm just so grateful for everything you shared today. I really, really appreciate it. And for those of you guys listening, I say this a lot lately, but if you listen to this on two times speed, make sure to earmark some time to go back and listen to it when you can actually really sit and absorb it. Thank you again for spending your time with me. I really appreciate you and I'll see you on the flip side. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're looking to surround yourself with more product entrepreneurs who totally get your life right now, get your booty on over to the e-commerce badassery Facebook group. Can't wait to see you there. Until next time, e-commerce friends, stay badass.